0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan.
1: And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, I'm feeling a little ambitious this week.
0: Now, are we talking about ambitious like, I'm going to wake up early to go jogging in the mornings ambitious, or more like, I'm going to create a blasphemous reflection of life in defiance of God ambitious? Oh,
1: shoot. Um, well, the way that you say number two makes me think that it's probably not such a good idea anymore.
0: I, I did kind of stack the deck there, didn't I? <laughs> Just a little bit. Well, listeners, we are feeling pretty ambitious with our pairing this week. We're going to be talking about two films about mankind's hubris and blasphemous science. First up is Jurassic World Dominion, the latest entry into the Jurassic Park franchise. We'll see if those dinosaurs uh, eat any people this time. I don't know. They might not, though. I mean,
1: could be could be a good worthwhile pursuit, potentially. <laughs> and then for the watch list, we are going to be talking about the 1931 Frankenstein movie a movie that is near and dear to my heart but I did I get a little bit ambitious in picking it for the watch list. Is Kevin going to like it? We'll find out <laughs> on this week's episode episode 337 of seeing and Believing.
0: Blue had a baby that's impossible <laughs> Hey girl. You look just like your mother. I promise you, I am gonna get her back.
1: Genetic power has now been unleashed. we made a terrible mistake. The doomsday clock might be about out of time.
0: Our world's gonna survive. What matters
1: is what we do now. I could use your expertise.
0: You coming or what?
1: A baby raptor? I made a promise we would bring her home.
0: You made a promise to a dinosaur?
1: Yeah.
0: Yes, we're here on episode 337 of Seeing and Believing, also known as the Hubris episode. <laughs> yeah. An episode that's all about mankind's reach, exceeding his grasp, and the horrible consequences that befall us when we try to play God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm here with Sarah Welch-Larson. How are you doing, Sarah? <laughs> uh,
1: hold on to your butts, everybody.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So we, we've got uh, a quite an episode up ahead waiting for you to kind of fulfill that promise Frankenstein is sort of the er, uh, Man playing God uh, mm-hmm. story, and that's coming up in the Watchlist segment. I'm looking forward to talking about that. But first, we have to turn our attention to the latest continuation of the Jurassic Park slash World franchise that's hitting theaters this weekend, Jurassic World Dominion.
1: I appreciate that you use the word have to turn our attention to <laughs> Jurassic World Dominion. I,
0: spoiler alert, Sarah, <laughs> please. Uh, here's the film's uh, synopsis to get us started. After the events of the previous film, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, in which dinosaurs escaped into the wild all over the earth, Humanity and dinos are still trying to figure out how to coexist in this brave new world. Surprise, surprise though, an unethical bioengineering organization just has to get involved in the name of corporate profits. And before long, humanity is facing down a prehistoric plague of locusts, weaponized velociraptors, and scientifically optimized apex predators. That leaves it to a grab bag of familiar heroes, played by Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard, and the 1993 Films trio of Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum to work together to expose the corporation's misdeeds and save the dinosaurs, and maybe even humanity itself from extinction. So, I I mean, I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, this is the the hubris episode, and hubris is the common thread that has run through all of these dinosaur movies from movie one way back in 1993, Mm -hmm. namely uh, the tendency of humanity to try to create and control life in ways that are wholly at odds with both good sense and uh, good stewardship. So I'm curious to kick off this discussion, Sarah. Do you think that Jurassic World Dominion has any interesting, uh, an interesting spin of its own on that well-worn theme? He,
1: the problem with Jurassic Dominion is that it's trying to do too many spins on that, I think. And it's just sort of throwing a grab bag, like you'd said, at the wall just to see what sticks. And I don't think any of it works necessarily. Like... This is a movie that is a Jurassic Park movie. It's also briefly like a James Bond movie for whatever reason. Like there's a lot of wild tonal shifts. I got notes of, I don't know, Jason Bourne in there a little bit. Like a dinosaur jumps from one building to another, followed by the camera, aping the shot from the Bourne ultimatum. And that sounds awesome out of context. And a lot of the stuff that happens in this movie on paper sounds like it would rule. And I think they were so focused on trying to get a bunch of stuff that ostensibly rules like onto the screen that they didn't stop to think about how to make it actually work in context and make it interesting and tell a coherent story while they were all about it. So I'm curious to know what you think about that, Kevin.
0: One might say that they were so preoccupied with whether or not they could (laughs) (laughs) that they didn't stop to think about whether they should, as a wise man once said. I mean... (laughs) That is I, this. This is not a good movie, no. uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it doesn't really. It, it kind of it knows that a Jurassic Park movie is supposed to be about you know hubris and uh, environmental responsibility mm-hmm. and uh, scientific overreach. It knows that that those are the ingredients that go into making a Jurassic Park cake. But Colin Trevorrow doesn't know how to do anything else to actually bake that mix into something that's compelling. Mm -hmm. And so what we're kind of left with is a movie that feels like it's throwing a lot of ideas at the wall, hoping that some of them will stick. None of them really do. And it ends up feeling not just like a mess, but also kind of cynical. Like they, they, Mm -hmm. they think that it'll be enough just to have dinosaurs in this movie and that will carry them through. But without anything interesting to go with those prehistoric beasties it's it it feels like a bunch of sound and fury doesn't signify anything
1: part of me wonders if this movie would have worked if it had been a dinosaur like super spy movie but hadn't been a jurassic park movie though like it's not i don't think it's the dinosaurs that are the problem here i think the problem is that they keep trying to tie this story into some grandiose mythology to do with jurassic park without actually thinking about what jurassic park is actually about like there is that thread of environmental responsibility and like scientific hubris but Every single Jurassic Park movie after the original keeps trying to recapture that lightning in a bottle of the first movie in a way that makes me think that the people who made those movies didn't actually think about what the first movie was remotely about. Like all of them feel very antithetical to the this is something that we probably shouldn't touch and it's something that we should be in awe of and instead of respecting like that sense of awe and wonder that Spielberg brings to the story in that first movie. There's a lot of just trying to stamp on whatever like gland in the brain like produces awe. (laughs) And the only response I have is just, sure, I guess like the special effects look really good. What do you want me to say? You know, like it, it just doesn't feel like a very cohesive franchise at all. And so this is just another incoherent Thing that's been tacked on to the end of something that's already been really incoherent.
0: Well, well. Sidebar: Do the special effects look that good, though? I feel like the the dinosaurs in this movie are not nearly as convincing as the ones from that 1993 film. No, that's
1: fair. That's fair.
0: I I mean, just watching that T Rex, uh, you know, standing in the rain, you know, chomping on a tire. Even though it's 30 years ago at this point, is wholly compelling. Whereas it doesn't feel like a lot of the dinosaurs here are anything more than kind of golf balls on sticks against a green screen. Yeah. And, and you know, that's – but that's kind of a, a whole other conversation about whether or not that's effective. Going back to what you were saying about how it feels like it's sort of it, – it, it's trying to st- stamp on the same gland. Mm-hmm. That, I, I like that term phrase because it, it feels – appropriate in that it seems like it's trying to brute force its way into being an interesting Jurassic Park movie, Mm. but I think it doesn't work, and there's a scene, there's a moment in this movie, I think, that kind of encapsulates how it's not working. So, uh, Laura Dern is in this movie, she's reprising her roles, Ellie Sattler. And she goes to a what what amounts to a wildlife preserve for dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. There's a in this uh, new world where they're out in the world uh, alongside humans. There's a poaching problem. There are a lot of uh, people who are unethically hunting dinosaurs, and so there have sprung up wildlife preserves that sort of collect these animals and and try to kind of give them a, a. better life and uh ellie sattler and alan grant uh go to one of these and they encounter this baby triceratops i guess in a Mm -hmm. box and uh laura dern kneels before the box and she's kind of petting the the triceratops and she's just saying oh it just never gets old and then that and then they they just move on to whatever the next stop is and i think the movie's failures sort of linger in that feeling like, oh, these are still, it's still really cool that dinosaurs exist now and that we can be fascinated and compelled and afraid of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, that's something that the first movie gets. You know, there's that that big climax where they see the, the brachiosaurs for the first time and John Williams' theme swells and everyone's collapsing and their jaws are on the floor. Mm-hmm. And there's awe in that moment. And there's no awe in this movie.
1: No, and you even get like Laura Dern doing the same glasses pull move at the beginning (laughs) of this movie, but she's doing it to a barren field, Mm -hmm. which is kind of upsetting and a bit of a letdown and also feels very metaphorically accurate for what's (laughs) going on here, which really bums me out. Like, I don't want this to be a bad movie. Like, I, I don't want to have to be subjected to a bad movie necessarily. But this one is just, it's, it's so deeply incoherent and so focused on calling back to the things that we used to feel something for and thinking that that is going to be enough for us to be able to feel something again, that it just kind of cheapens the sense of awe and wonder that you get in the original Jurassic Park. There's a lot of mentions of, oh, this is like a really cool beast, or we're going to name a dinosaur and we're going to, like, it feels like it's ex- the movie is expecting you to know what all of the dinosaur names are, the kind of the way that like a five-year-old kid really would. But there's no pausing to like actually think about what that means for that animal to like live in the world today. There's just, oh, this is something that wants to eat you and we're going to have to fight it. And that also feels like kind of a cheapening of that awe and wonder because In this movie, all of the dinosaurs, it feels like, are predators of some sort, and they're there to just, like, exist as a danger to the human beings who are also trying to save them. That seems like an interesting quandary to be stuck in, but those dinosaurs only exist to provide that sense of danger and not that sense of awe, and... I don't know. It just I'm just so deeply frustrated because there's there's a very interesting story in here somewhere and it's just buried underneath layers of just details that are meant to make you feel something and they just absolutely don't.
0: It it makes you wonder it, you know how much Colin Trevorrow knows that he he kind of how much has been left on the table with this movie and how much Colin Trevorrow is aware that he's leaving it on the table because, you know, he did help to, uh, you know, write this movie. He's obviously directing it. And there's so many elements of it that seem like they're there on purpose to say something uh, deeper than just, holy crap, dinosaurs. <laughs> like, the, you know, they're, um, the, the evil corporation Biosyn has created – uh, a literal plague of locusts. There's a um, uh, kind of a sub theme that's alluded to a few times uh, over the course of the movie, most prominently in the ending, which it doesn't earn at all, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, humans just have to learn to coexist with these animals and we're all going to have to learn to to live together and, and work together. And there's, you know, shots of, you know, a triceratops walking through the Serengeti next to an elephant. Mm -hmm. And that's, so there's this very strong, well, I don't want to say very strong, but it seems like if Trevorrow wanted to make this movie sort of about humanity's stewardship of creation and, and how a refusal to do that in the name of, of profit or personal gain leads to almost divine punishment in the form of these plagues. Like that, that could be a very compelling direction to take these movies. And it's something that I the Jurassic Park f- franchise hasn't really done before. Namely, like, is, is there some sort of spiritual component to mm. our relationship to these things that we created? Um, but it's mostly content to just frame the dinosaurs as these are things that are going to break break things really good and or eat things real good and we have to fight them and that's i mean it's 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 a very depressing thing for a movie to have the opportunity to say something about stewarding creation but instead see creation purely in an adversarial manner
1: i think it's that adversarial manner um that kind of sums up the way that the movie is constructed sort of like Those dinosaurs exist in order to be a danger only in the scenes where they exist. And then the movie just sort of almost forgets that they exist at all. You've got that plague of locusts that's like ravaging the crops that haven't been genetically engineered by Biosyn. Um, And when those are on screen, those are the only creatures that matter. And then when the dinosaurs are on screen, those are the only creatures that matter. It just feels like the movie is very um, only focused on what is in front of its face at any given point in time. And there's no cohesion to how any of these threads kind of mesh together at all. And I think part of that is also just a technical problem of just how poorly this movie is edited.
0: Yeah, I'm glad we're going to get to that. Please please continue, because yeah. <laughs> you and I, we were at the, the same screen together. And after it was over, we talked about this quite a bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels, it really feels like... There was a lot that was left on the cutting room floor, which is kind of incredible for a movie that is almost two and a half hours long, Mm -hmm. that's just connective tissue. And it's not even stuff that's really all that important, but when you leave the connective tissue on the ground... I think that the movie just isn't capable of, like, walking on its own legs. There are scenes where uh, one character creates a torch out of a couple of implements, and then the very next scene, he sort of... He pulls out a lighter and then the next cut, that torch has clearly been burning for like five minutes straight. And the effect is extremely jarring. It's not something that you're supposed to notice, but you do because there's no flow from one action to the next. There's another scene where characters are trying to get up a ladder in order to escape dinosaurs and one of them is in extreme danger because the dinosaur has its jaws clamped around the cage around the ladder And then literally like five seconds later, everybody's already up the ladder and there's no danger there anymore. And this sort of thing just keeps happening over and over and over again where the tension and the anxiety are ramped up with dinosaurs menacing people or people being stuck in precarious situations. And then it's just suddenly deflated because for whatever reason, like the most important action has just been left on the cutting room floor. And I just can't make heads or tails why that's even the case.
0: You you know, for I feel like it, it's it's sometimes fashionable to take Spielberg to task for uh, his, his thematic preoccupations. Um, yeah, you know, various people will say, you know, he he has kind of these pet themes that he returns to over and over again, and they are not always a comfortable fit with the material. But one thing that everybody can agree on is that Spielberg is a consummate – a technical filmmaker. He yes. knows how to put together a sequence to achieve a desired effect. Mm-hmm. So you think about um for example, you know, the the first T-Rex attack in the rain mm-hmm. or even a scene that doesn't have dinosaurs in it at all, for example, the the scene in the tree where they're trying to get out of the tree before they get crushed by a jeep mm-hmm. or where they're trying to get over an electric offe- uh, an electric fence before the power comes back on. Uh, those are all put together and cut together in a way that the most important thing in the world at that moment is we want these characters to be okay mm-hmm. and we understand exactly what the threat is, where the threat is and how much time they have before things go really wrong for them. Mm-hmm. With this film it's the, the, the technical aspects of just how action and suspense sequences are put together just totally drain it of any sort of Vivacity that that scene that you talked about where they're being menaced by this Uber T Rex, mm-hmm. you know they're trying to climb up a, a ladder into a safe space, and because of the way it's edited and even the way that Trover- Trevorrow has framed some of these shots, it seems weirdly like the big dinosaurs just sort of sitting there waiting for them to slowly edge around a car mm-hmm. and then slowly climb up a ladder. And every now and then there's a cut to the, you know, the dinosaur roaring or clamping his jaws on on something. But the way that those shots are all put together, even if intellectually you understand the characters are under threat, the filmmaking is so slack that it doesn't feel like they're under threat.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and also kind of getting back to that... Um thematic like clarity that spielberg has to i don't think that this movie possesses an ounce of that either kind of going back to that same scene where all of these characters are trying to get up this ladder there's a quotation of that t-rex in the rain scene in the original jurassic park where jeff goldblum you know has the has the flare and he's running away um and in this movie, they kind of quote that where Jeff Goldblum lights a torch and tries to get the T-Rex's attention. But instead of lighting a flare, realizing he's in danger, and then running out of there, um, he just faces down this T-Rex as though it's it's nothing, you know? Like, it's just a gigantic CGI monster that could stomp on him, but actually it's, it's really weightless, and he's going to be able to chase it off with the same... Um, I don't know, fire that he lit. Like, it, it, it just does not make any sense why he would be able to face down this monster in this particular scene when it's supposed to be bigger and badder than the T-Rex in the original and you don't feel any sense of danger while he's doing that. Like, it, it just doesn't compute.
0: Well, and he, in in the first movie, when he's got that flair, he's, it's it's a moment sort of self-sacrifice. He's trying to save some kids, mm-hmm. even though in the first movie up to that point, he's been kind of characterized as, as a little bit of a creep. Mm-hmm. You know, he's still, like, in, in the moment that he needs to, he steps up and he's doing something, and he does something very foolish. But there's a, like, Spielberg... Through the the filmmaking and through the characterization helps the audience to form a relationship to the character and to the choices the character is making in that moment. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one, the the character's name is the same, but he doesn't have you know he he only has as much personality as Jeff Goldblum can sort of muscle <laughs> into his line readings. Which, to be fair, I love me some Jeff Goldblum off kilter line readings. But there's only so far that's going to take you in a movie like this. And it, it just kind of feels... It feels tired and like nobody really has any idea of why they're there other than that. Dino movie, make money. Mm-hmm. Let's make Dino
1: movie. I, and I do kind of hope that everybody who was involved in this, who was especially the Legacy players, did get paid a giant dump, a giant dump truck full of money for this. Because I wouldn't understand why they would want to go through it in the first place. That being said... The Jeff Goldbluminess of it all really didn't work for me because I think that there's a level of the movie. The movie keeps edging up towards earnestness, and then it keeps head faking away. There, are, there are moments, especially early on, when we're establishing or re-establishing the relationship between um, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard and like their surrogate daughter, where. By the way,
0: Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard are in this movie. They are in this movie. For (laughs) some reason. Sorry, continue.
1: No, it's just, it surprised me too, actually, just thinking about the fact that you have the legacy players and then you have this whole brand new group of people. And I always forget about them unless they're exactly on screen. And when they are on screen, they're sort of faking their way towards, oh, I love you. Oh, I appreciate you oh, I'm going to say something to sort of defuse this situation as well. It kind of feels like the dialogue version of the deflating editing, where you just kind of take the wind out of everybody's sails by making a joke about, oh, well, that happened. Haha, isn't that funny? As opposed to just sitting in the moment and enjoying like a piece of, I don't know, earnestness. Like, can't we just be earnest about this for once? And I think that's where Jeff Goldblum's character like really doesn't work for me is that he's kind of deflating a lot of that earnestness as well mm. with a lot of the quippy pieces there.
0: I mean, I can see where you're coming from on there. The the sort of the, the quippiness that I feel like has come into vogue with with blockbusters with maybe with the you know joss whedon's avengers kind of being an exemplar of it not that you know the quippiness is fun but after a while you kind of you want the movie to give you something real yeah and it it doesn't really this film doesn't really do that now uh playing devil's advocate here it does seem like the movie might be trying to really lean into some sort of gallows humor uh, about just how supremely messed up the world is and how on a knife's edge the survival of the entire human race is. There's a, a scene where... Um, uh, a minor supporting character is at the CIA. The CIA is in this movie too, for some reason, <laughs> listeners. Um, and uh, he's sitting next to kind of this, uh, this tech guy, the CIA tech guy um, who's, who's saying like, yeah, we know all the, all the crops are, are being eaten by these locusts, but you know what? It, it's, it's bound to happen. We're, we're all going to die anyway. That's just the way it goes. And it, it feels like in that moment, it's sort of, it's a sort of it's the sort of sentiment that you know in in an age of climate change, rising fascism, all these all these things, you can kind of sympathize with that sort of bleak vonnegut style, you know, so it goes, we're all going to die, kind of humor. I don't think for a minute that Trevorrow leans into that with any sort of intentionality in order to make it a fully functional feature of the film. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's why you know Ian Malcolm's quippiness, you know, kind of didn't. It worked for me a little bit better, maybe, than it did for you, because it does feel like if anybody is going in these movies is going to be the the gallows humor guy, it's going to be Jeff Goldblum's Ian Malcolm.
1: I'll give him that, but I feel like the rest of the movie would need to be written a lot better in order for me to be, be making <laughs> any comparison to Kurt Vonnegut.
0: I I mean, I feel like I should take. Kurt Vonnegut's name out of my mouth when discussing this film because there, there really is no comparison. But I know I, we we talked a couple weeks ago about we're all going to the World's Fair and how that film feels very much of its moment mm-hmm. in in an interesting way, and it feels like Jurassic Park Dominion or Jurassic World Dominion, excuse me, is very much of its time in. A way that's not at all intentional and is kind of soul crushing, <laughs> but I mean, you that that kind of gallows humor, that kind of unwillingness to make itself vulnerable to true human connection mm-hmm. or even true connection with uh, you know God's creation around us, that also feels very much of its moment. I just wish that it was on purpose. <laughs>
1: yeah. Same here
0: uh well listeners that is our review of jurassic world dominion out this weekend everywhere if you if you have a chance to see it this weekend and have a take on it that uh you'd like to share with us we would love to hear it we'd love to hear uh any defenders as well i remember uh when i reviewed fallen kingdom with wade four years ago he was a, a defender of mm. of that and so i'm curious to know if Jurassic World Dominion has any defenders out there. Uh, send those uh, words our way as well. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter. Stick around. We're going to be talking about a much better film about humanity's hubris, 1931's Frankenstein, coming up in a second.
1: This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission.
0: Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to
1: know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And
0: grace will lead.
1: Volunteer or donate. Visit UGM.org.
0: Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there on email or or Twitter who are helping us keep the conversation about movies going. And Sarah, this week you actually, I thought you had a pretty good ask on Twitter. You were uh, wanting people to share what their favorite movie monsters were. So obviously Jurassic Park slash World is all about dinosaurs as monster movies and mm. i mean the t-rex from the original film is a strong contender for an all-timer mm-hmm. um but you you want to know what some other people's picks were and i don't know we, we got some some pretty good off the beaten path ones we sure did yes. yeah so uh first up uh, kyle matthews uh tweeted in and said that uh his pick for his favorite movie monsters were uh hellboy and abe sapien from guillermo del toro's hellboy movies which they are monsters. They're they're also protagonists, which I, I really appreciated that.
1: I love a good monster protagonist, honestly. And to be fair, I think quite a lot, maybe the vast majority of Guillermo del Toro's characters are monsters, whether mm-hmm. that's the misfit version or the villainous version. Quite often, the line between those two is blurred. But I love that pick. I think it's fantastic.
0: Yeah. I mean, now, now that you say that, I'm thinking about, you know, the river god from The Shape of Water mm-hmm. is basically the creature from the Black Lagoon, except uh, a romantic lead. Yes. So, you know, I, I, you've, you're probably on to something there. We also heard from Ron Sturry who wrote in to say Frankenstein was his favorite. yes. And I can get behind that. We'll probably talk a lot about that in the upcoming segment. And then Christy and Elijah Olsen both wrote in with what I think is the off-the-beaten-path pick to beat all off-the-beaten-path picks. First of all, Elijah did uh, share a, a more conventional pick for his favorite movie monster, and that would be the shark from Jaws. Good which pick. Very good pick. Um,
1: Spielberg does it best, honestly.
0: (laughs) Spielberg knows what he's about. Um, But then uh, he and Christy shared that their pick probably for their favorite movie monster would be John Goodman's character from 10 Cloverfield Lane, which, honestly, no notes. That is a great pick.
1: It's fantastic. It's not one that I would have ever thought of in a million years, and it's perfect, honestly. It's just so good.
0: Maybe the ultimate man is the real monster
1: pick especially because he's just so scary like i don't know that but that movie messed me up
0: he, he's scary but in in a way that's it, it's not like a he he's not a i mean he is a psycho but he, he's not sort of like a, a movie
1: psycho like, he's, he's not a leather
0: face he's just
1: he's believable
0: a believable very scary man Uh, I I loved John Goodman uh, playing to his range on that. So yeah, great picks all. Thanks for writing in.
1: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. We also heard in from Lindsay Dunn, who had some feedback uh, about men, which Kevin didn't love and I did like quite a bit. So um, Lindsay wrote and said that she enjoyed men much more than I anticipated. I really liked the music. It used a lot of sacred music, which I guess went with the original sin message. But one of the points you guys brought up was about Rory Kinnear playing all the men and what that meant. I think it could be taken multiple ways, but the take that I like is that in today's culture, women don't feel safe around men. That even when a guy seems like a nice guy, there's a part of you that can't seem to see them. As anything but a threat. That's not how I've, she says she feels personally, but she does say that it feels. She feels it's a sentiment that she hears expressed by women in our culture, and yeah, I get that. I, I like that read quite a bit as well.
0: I can, I can totally get behind that as well, and you know, again. Man is the real monster. In this case, literally, man. You know, men are the real monsters. Uh, thanks for for those thoughts. And I, I'm glad also that you know you got some more uh, people to add to uh, men fan nation. I guess if, if that's the right term for it. I don't
1: know if it counts as a nation since there's probably about a dozen of us. But you know what? We'll stay strong.
0: You you, you have to start somewhere. Thanks everyone for writing in with your thoughts. Thanks Lindsay for that detailed look at men. Uh, like we mentioned before, you can email and tweet us with your thoughts we'd love to hear from and like we said it helps us keep the conversation going which is what we're all about
1: mm-hmm. quite a good scene isn't it one man crazy three very
0: sane spectators <laughs> and now it's time for the watch list segment or should i say i feel like i should do something like it's alive but <laughs> yeah. i i don't know that i have quite the maniacal uh chutzpah in me to, to really sell that to it's alive time. that that's better that's better um We'll we'll have to, you know, maybe off the air kind of like uh, try to polish that, see if we can really get it to the fever pitch that this film deserves, because we are talking about the the granddaddy of all Frankenstein movies. This is, of course, James Wales, 1931 adaptation starring Boris Karloff. And, you know. I don't even know that a plot synopsis is really necessary. Everybody knows about Mary Shelley's classic novel about man trying to play God, creating his own person out of the discarded parts of those who have passed on and paying dearly for his crimes against nature. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Sarah, this was uh, your pick for this week. I had not seen it before. Um so I'm really curious to know, I mean, beyond the the tie-in obviously with hubris and and so forth, Mm -hmm. uh what is it that you you see in this movie that makes you like it so much?
1: Oh man, it's just (sighs) partly the the theme of of hubris and, and mad science, but this movie is kind of paradoxical in that it's a B movie that is just sort of stretching towards transcendence and not quite ever getting exactly to that point, but it gets so close. And I love it for it the fact that it literally is just a, a big budget B movie from 1931. It was really never intended to be anything more than that necessarily. But I think that there are those little flashes of transcendence and like genuine artistic achievement that kind of turn the movie into something greater than it ever could have been as like just a collection of spare parts.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there.
1: Thank you. Um... And a lot of that has to do with um, the performances, but there's also some technical stuff in here that I I hope we can get into a little bit. Everybody talks about Boris Karloff's performance in particular, and I do love that. But the thing that really makes this movie tick for me is Colin Clive's Mm. performance as Henry Frankenstein. He's just got enough of a wild-eyed... he's He's sort of trying to hulk and act like he is bigger than he is, like physically in his body, um, and he's got kind of this wild eyed like frailty to him at the same time. and I think that it's that manic energy that sort of carries the movie through it's It's pretty brief runtime. With as much momentum as it has, and so that's usually the performance that I actually tend to fixate on even more than Boris Karloff's. So, which is also a great one. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious to know what you thought about it.
0: Yeah, so I I am uh, I, glad that we got to this film because when we talked about Dracula, mm-hmm. uh, you know. A, a while ago now. Mm-hmm. Um I I felt I I was bummed about that one to be honest because I knew that you you liked it a lot. Um it had such a an outsized reputation mm-hmm. and yet there it just it didn't it, I just didn't connect with it somehow. And I was kind of bummed to rain on on your parade. <laughs>
1: with the first watch list pick. With, no yeah, it was
0: the very it was your very first watch list pick too. So I was you know, that, like I said, I was a little bit sad about that. So I was really happy that uh, I connected a lot more strongly with Frankenstein, and I think a lot of it. You know, I'm glad that you brought up Colin Clive. We'll probably talk about him more because I think he does. His performance is transfixing in a similar way, I think, to Bela Lugosi's Dracula. Mm-hmm. He's got that. He's got those those intense dark eyes. He's got this um this way of holding himself where he's all, he almost seems like he's vibrating mm-hmm. um it, it's a great performance but i think also th- there's something about this film that i just find more visually dynamic mm-hmm. than than dracula there's just i was sucked into it um just by the the way that the camera moves and kind of yeah. takes us um into different places or the the way that shots are framed in a way that it feels like you know we' we're, we're looking at sets but there's it it feels like they're not just sets there's there's an atmosphere to it that I didn't find as much in in Dracula whenever Bell Lugosi wasn't on camera. Mm-hmm. I think this Frankenstein just there's a, a something there and and maybe we can kind of try to put our finger on what that something is because I'm not sure that I I totally can myself but there's a something here Mm -hmm. that really works for me it might have to do with the specific way that dr frankenstein's hubris is framed it's not just he tried to do something stupid it's that he tried to do something immoral yes and that's where the the frisson comes from and i think that's to tie it into the Jurassic World discussion, that's something that this movie has that that movie doesn't, which is that hubris isn't just about doing something you shouldn't. It's about doing something you shouldn't because it's 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 evil yeah. <laughs> and it's it's obscene. There's something deeply wrong with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what 1931's uh, Frankenstein has in spades.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's crucial... And it really kind of bums me out that most people don't focus on this part of the line reading because there's that famous line reading of it's alive, it's alive, it's alive. And Colin Clive, like you said, like is literally vibrating off the screen while he's yelling it. But then he continues that line. And instead of finishing with just it's alive, um, he carries on and says, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. And Mm -hmm. he shouts Mm -hmm. that at the heavens while he's saying it and then there's almost this look of agony on his face right afterwards like he's he's looking up at the ceiling of a very tall tower where we've seen the monster the the not the titular monster but where we see his creation be lifted up to the sky in order to be given life from lightning and rays the movie's very hand-wavy about the science so the monster is literally lifted up into the air above Dr. Frankenstein and then descends back down to earth having been given this amount of life and frankenstein is also trying to transcend like the bonds of the earth he's trying to rise far above his station and he's unable to do it he's just stuck looking up where his creation had been for a moment and no longer is and he's not able to follow it he's only able to just stand there and and sort of blaspheme after he's already (laughs) blasphemed by creating life in the first place and i think that the movie is very smart about not necessarily like calling it too much attention to it I think that's because the Hays Code was about to be put into place at that point. And I think that line was actually censored in a few showings like fairly early on, just like another scene was also censored um, and wasn't seen in its entirety until like it was restored in, I think, the 50s or the 60s. Um, so this movie is also it's it's very transgressive and of its time because it's kind of pushing at the bounds of what's appropriate to show on screen as well. And I just, I find that piece of film history also very fascinating, and it kind of enriches the contents of the story as well.
0: I, yeah, I, I like you calling attention to Colin Clive's performance in that scene specifically, the that, that expression that he gets on his face after he says that he knows what it's like to be God, mm-hmm. where that's not, like he says it, and it's a moment of triumph for him. And then he, it's almost like, he realizes what he's just said and what that means mm-hmm. and what sorts of responsibilities it confers on him to have created life and then when we see what happens to the monster, uh it's it, it becomes much more tragic. it's it becomes less about like he creates this this monster that's then going to wreak havoc. It's much more about... He created a monster, and there's there's a moral weight that accompanies that action and the actions that follow, and that's what I find to be most compelling to think about with this film, and what I think a lot of movies get wrong about these kinds of stories. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's he's also responsible for everything that his creation does in a way, mm-hmm. and I think that the movie. Calls attention to that without explicitly stating it necessarily. Kind of to skip ahead a little bit. um, The scene where Maria's father brings her to the wedding. I think he's literally bringing like the consequences of Dr. Frankenstein's actions like to his threshold, literally. And it's another incredible like long dolly shot. This movie is full of them. And I think that's some of that dynamism that that you were keying up on. Um, The camera moves a lot. And I think the moment where the camera moves the most that keeps my attention is this scene where this little girl who has been thrown into a lake by Frankenstein's monster and subsequently drowned is carried into the town by her father. We don't see the discovery of her body. We just see this distraught man carrying his dead child into the middle of a wedding celebration, breaking up the celebration with him as he goes. And he takes the child directly to Frankenstein's door and just sort of says, this is what's happened. Like, we need to fix this problem. And the movie doesn't ever make the connection. Like, that that father never makes the connection that it's Henry Frankenstein's creation that killed his daughter. And I don't think that that matters because we, the audience, know that. And we know that that responsibility still weighs on his shoulders.
0: Yeah, I would have liked to have seen this film lean even more into that. And I think mm-hmm. this, is, this is where I feel like I, I really like this movie. I feel like it's... Compromised though, in that it never allows itself to really show Henry Frankenstein uh, paying the piper, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, so you know, it it it, it does feel like even though i I don't think the Hayes code was in effect at the time this film was made, it wasn't the it feels kind of Hayes code in the way it pulls its punches in the way that Henry Frankenstein he still gets the girl he still hmm. kind of has a happy ending and it ends on a note where you know the the uh, his bride's uh blustering father says ho oh, oh, ho oh, ho it's so funny and then it kind of ends on every, like everybody laughing yeah. which is it's such an odd note to end on because the the gut punch of um the father bringing the fruits of Henry Frankenstein's blasphemy to his doorstep and and demanding restitution and then later the the horrible scene where the monster is burned alive in a windmill mm-hmm. never really understanding why he has been given life or or what is being done to him other than that it shouldn't be mm-hmm. that way like those are all extremely powerful sequences and i think i i i really would have loved to see a version of this film where it keeps everything and then maybe just has a different ending <laughs>
1: So you would have preferred that Henry just dies at the end?
0: Maybe not dies at the end, but it, it it feels like ending it on a on a note where you know he's recovering in bed with his devoted wife beside him mm-hmm. and his 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 inexplicably stuffy British father-in-law is drinking champagne outside the door. There's something about that that just, that doesn't work for me and I think I feel the not workingness of it so intensely Mm -hmm. because everything up to that point, I think, does work to allow the monster to be scary and tragic at the same time in a way that doesn't shortchange either of those elements.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's the paradox of this movie, though, is that it's, it's trying to do a lot of things all at once. It's just very focused about all of those things at once. Um, like it's trying to be scary and it's also trying to be a bit of a crowd pleaser and it's trying to make Universal Studios a lot of money because they were having a lot of problems at that point in time. Um, the ending also doesn't fully work for me. like that that is a flaw, I think, but the rest of the movie outweighs it so much that I can almost look past it. Most of the time when I'm thinking about the ending of this movie, I'm not thinking about Henry Frankenstein recovering in bed. I'm actually thinking about him getting thrown off the windmill um, because he gets strangled by the monster and literally thrown off the windmill and you see his body bounce off one of those fins. And that feels like enough of a comeuppance to me that I'm willing to just ignore the last 30 seconds of the film.
0: Well, I I feel like his blasphemy is so intense that, you know, to, to... To put on the Bane voice, his punishments must be more severe. You know, like the, when, when you literally stare up at the heavens and say, I know now what it is to be God. Mm-hmm. I feel and then you're you have the blood of a little girl on your hands and then the blood of your own creation on your hands. Mm-hmm. I feel like there should be. He know, does
1: get thrown from a high height. I, I By mean, his own creation. To be
0: fair, I've never been thrown off of a windmill myself, so maybe it is far, far worse than it looks like in this movie. <laughs> I, I'm I'm willing to concede that. Um, I do want to talk a little bit. I mean, we we've gone this far without talking about the monster himself all that much. Boris oh, Karloff. Oh yeah. Um, the performance he gives. I I'm really curious to hear you exult over that because I'm sure oh, you you know having I'm... written about it, you you've got a lot. To, to say
1: i am capable of exulting over boris karloff quite a lot actually um my husband and i actually went through and watched all of the old like universal frankenstein movies like all eight of them last fall so um i spent a lot of time tweeting about <laughs> boris karloff um and i think what works about his performance is that so much of it is so deeply physical and it's theatrical and it's over the top when it needs to be but he's also very subtle like he does a lot with like a lowered eyelid or a flip of the wrist or just like a little curve of his fingers Um, especially when he's cradling the flowers that little Maria Mm. the the girl who dies um, hands him before he throws her into the lake he just kind of like reaches around and he's very very gentle and he's very gentle when he first wakes up Um, You can just kind of see his hand sort of shaking, like hovering a little bit off the table, like he's literally been resurrected, even though he never really was alive to begin with. Um, And then the scene that gets me every single time is when we're first introduced to the standing walking monster. He gets into the same room as Henry Frankenstein and Henry opens a window above him and there's this shaft of light above him. And the monster just kind of reaches up with his hands and he's trying to grab that light. Mm. And it's that level of trying to grasp at that transcendence, like trying to exceed your station in life and not fully understanding why or how and not being able to fully get there. And the movie is extremely humane about how it treats that monster because I think it understands that the monster's station in life is not his fault but he's stuck in that station anyway. And so for a moment we kind of just sit there with the camera facing him at eye level. Quite often the camera's looking up at him to make him look even bigger than he already is. But the camera's got him at eye level and his hands are reaching up and he's trying to grab the light. And I I feel that in that moment and everything else just kind of falls away there. So that's that's how I feel about Boris Karloff. I mean, <laughs>
0: that's that's all one hundred percent on target. I I have nothing to add other other than to say that he, it's just it's a great physical performance. Yes, I, I would have to see watch it again to be fully comfortable calling it one of the great physical performances of all time mm-hmm. in movies. But I mean, it's it's obviously just incredible the way that he lurches. The and, and the ways that he he holds his hands, you know, there's kind of the the stereotypical, you know, Frankenstein, he's kind of marching with his hands held out straight in front of him. He's, you know, gonna grab you. Um, but Karloff actually mostly holds his hands just slightly elevated from his side. So they're not straight down by his sides. So they're mm-hmm. not uh point out straight out in front of him. They're kind of held almost as if he's kind of testing the weight of his own hands on his mm-hmm. wrists. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, there, there's a, a gentleness to the way, like the hands aren't stiff. He holds them in, with just the right amount of stiffness and flexibility where you buy that he is a corpse that mm-hmm. has recently been reanimated. So he's got some rigor mortis going on there. But he also, it's not so stiff. Like, you see, again, the gentleness in his hands. Like it's, there's enough curve and flexibility in those hands to suggest... I guess the potential of what those hands are capable of. Mm-hmm. What you know, what they, they're capable of strangling, but they're also capable of cupping a daisy and tossing it into a pond. And I think that's just—it's wonderful. And a lesser physical performance, I don't think, would have uh, communicated those nuances in a way that would have, like, Frankenstein's monster wouldn't have been nearly as tragic and affecting without them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. We'll have to get you watching Bride of Frankenstein at some point, I think, because you get a little bit more of that that pathos as well, and a lot of that same performance by Boris Karloff with, I think, a little bit more subtlety almost. So, um, this is just my my secret plan to get you to just watch all the Frankenstein movies because I think they're great.
0: Okay, well, you know, you know, Bride of Frankenstein, we'll add that to the running list we're keeping of of possible watch list picks. I'm on board for that, and yeah, I was glad to finally have caught up with this this film it's it's so funny i feel like i grew up hearing that you know bella lugosi's dracula was sort of the good one (laughs) and uh boris carlos frankenstein was fine but not like not great and i think it's i i it's been interesting to finally see them for myself and find it being almost exactly the opposite i i really i even though there are parts of this film that i felt compromise it i feel like i would happily watch it again and just really allow myself to take in you know everything that's going on with the performances and the and the production design and everything
1: a lot so. of a lot of, lot of great stuff there we didn't even talk about the production design like, there's oh, some interesting stuff going well, on let's talk there. about it right now yeah definitely uh have at it yeah <laughs> <laughs> um the, not just the windmill but also the the secret lab dr Frankenstein's lab's got kind of that like German expressionism piece in there too um a lot of the sets are sort of elongated to kind of feel like they're also stretching up towards the heavens um just like Frankenstein himself is I don't know like there's that there's that gorgeous staircase that kind of goes from the doorway to Frankenstein's um lab all the way up to the top of his lab where like he conducts his experiments and it looks like these gigantic big blocks and it looks incredibly heavy and i have no idea like how they made it or whether or not it was plywood or anything but it's got a weight and a depth to it that i really appreciate a lot
0: yeah so the the production design in this feels very dramatic in in the the literal sense you know the the film opens with a, a man literally coming out from behind a a stage curtain and saying, we are about to unfold to you the story of Frankenstein. It may horrify you. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's all very, very dramatic. And the stage lights are kind of, you know, he's lit from below. It's almost like he's, we're sitting around a campfire and he's holding a flashlight under his face. It's wonderful. Um, but there are so many scenes where, you know, it's obviously shot on a soundstage, but we kind of get these uh these shots of characters sort of walking uh along a horizon and they're Mm -hmm. in their backlit like a shadow play and there's just this incredible again like kind of a german expressionist quality like it feels it, it it's it's artificial but it's artificial in a way that just sucks you into an entire world in the same way that when you're watching a play you fully believe in the world that's on stage even though literally it's you know it's just a, an enclosed space with curtains and, you know, rigging and stuff all around. But in, while it's going on, you're fully brought into it and believing it. And that has a lot of credit that needs to be given to the the craft that, mm-hmm. that makes us buy into that so well. Um, I also want to call out the, the, the very opening scene after, you know, we get the, the introduction, which is uh, – frankenstein and his uh assistant fritz which was surprised me i was expecting him to be igor because that was just that's just sort of the uh the myth that's been built up around this film but no it's it's fritz Mm -hmm. um and uh they are waiting for a funeral to end so they can go in and, and nab the body and there's this cross that's kind of tilted at an angle that's you know, looming over them as they go about their blasphemous business. It's wonderful. And then as they leave the graveyard, there's an executed man hanging from a gibbet Mm -hmm. and they cut him down as well. Mm -hmm. And that, that also is just, it's... It's spooky and creepy, but it's not gratuitous or grotesque. Mm-hmm. And I think I appreciate so much how it is able to thread that needle.
1: There's an elegant simplicity, I think, to a mm. lot of those sets. And there are you can tell the difference between everything that was shot on location versus what was shot on a soundstage. And you're right, I don't think it matters at all because what matters is like that heightened sensibility of we're watching a very grand and big drama that is bigger than any of these characters themselves, even though they may not necessarily know it. Um, And we're going to watch them attempt to transcend those limitations and and maybe they'll get there and maybe they won't. and They probably aren't going to end well for it. yeah, I love that. I love that detail.
0: Yeah, I think that and that's kind of the way the the whole story or even stories about hubris in general work is just humankind being part of something much bigger than ourselves and yet not fully respecting that <laughs> and trying to I don't know, get a little big big for our britches, I guess there's there's that's kind of the the crucial element here. That I think Frankenstein absolutely nails and other films about hubris maybe maybe don't so much.
1: I appreciate that final dig about Jurassic World.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have to stick the knives in as, as much as possible. It it must be killed. It must be destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, that is our, our view of Frankenstein. Hopefully you had a chance to watch along with us. That's something that... We we hope that you have a chance to do for for all of these, which is why we announced them, you know, a week ahead of time, just to you know, if you've also are like me and did not catch up with Frankenstein until this late hour, uh, it's a way for you to kind of join us on that journey. Mm-hmm. Next week, uh, we are going to be watching a another uh, horror film, a very different one though, but much oozier one. <sighs> hmm. So the new release that we're going to be reviewing next week is uh, the new David Cronenberg film, Crimes of the Future. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed only fitting that I would introduce you to my favorite Cronenberg film and one of my favorite horror films ever, which is his, his 1986 remake of The Fly.
1: I'm excited. I've never seen a Cronenberg movie before. So Cronenberg Double Bill seems like a really good way to get that kicked off.
0: So listeners, I'll warn you, it's it's an intense sit, but I think it's very good and gets at maybe some of the same themes about uh, humankind's uh, hubris and the consequences, horrible as they may be, that come about from that. Uh, but that will do it for this week's episode. The, the hubris episode has finally come to an end. I'm glad that we haven't been eaten or killed or otherwise hurt by... Creations or demons of our own making.
1: We didn't fly too close to the sun, I hope.
0: <laughs> Hopefully not. We'll see how we do next week. Listeners, that is our episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My co-host is Sarah Welch-Larson, and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.